ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. All right, so I, I called this sermon, I Refuse. And when I think about people refusing to do something, I, I think of little toddlers and kids. And, and you know when kids just don't want to do something and they go, what, what we call them, my family, just boneless. Have you seen this? You, you know, you're walking, you're like, come on, let's go. And they're like, oh, we don't want to. And they're kind of walking like this. Like every bone is just turned to jello, right? They don't want to do what it is that you want them to do. And they fight back. And they just want to put their foot down and say, no way, I'm not going another step farther. I'm staying right here. Or worse, I'm going over there where you don't want me to go. But I refuse to do what you want me to do. I remember a little girl who refused to eat anything her parents gave her. When we were around this family, it was a battle, a long, drawn-out battle. They would try to put good food in front of her and, and try to get her to eat it, and she just kept saying, no, 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 I want crackers and peanut butter. Crackers and peanut butter. So after about 10 minutes of this, the mom would pull out crackers and peanut butter and open it up, and give it to the child. And like any, we'd be at a restaurant. Anything else that this child had ordered. This isn't one of my kids, by the way. It's my brother's kid. But anyway. <clears throat> not to name names. You don't know which brother. I only have one. But it's all right. But, but, and, and, you know, I often thought, wow, my niece has got my sister-in-law trained pretty well. <laughs> I was like, she knew if she kept going, if she kept refusing that the parent would give in. It's kind of funny at times, right, in kids. Sometimes it's almost sort of kind of cute, especially when it's somebody else's kid. We kind of chuckle, ha-ha, that's funny. But what about for adults? I think we still struggle with this, this refusal, I'm not going any further. I don't want to do what I'm supposed to do. I refuse. And that's what the passage is about that we're going to look at today at the end of Matthew chapter 18. Now, I need to give you a little bit of a, an overview. The, the email that went out, and actually up here too, it says I'm preaching on Matthew 18, 15 to 35. What we're going to do, this is kind of in two sections. We're going to spend almost all of our time in the first section, and then I'm going to go through the second section incredibly fast. Next week, we're going to swap that. I'm going to go back over the first section really quick, and spend the bulk of our time in the second section. Now, the reason is that these two, they might be familiar with to you. The one is the passage on church discipline. Aren't you just so glad you came to church today? That's what it's about, church discipline. We'll talk about what that means. The second is the passage on forgiveness. How many times do we forgive someone that sinned against us? And maybe you know the phrase 70 times 7. That's, this is where it comes from. But these two passages, I believe, must be kept together. So I don't want to deal with any one of them without dealing with the other. Because I think the context is so crucial here. Now, also to talk about context, it did boot up, by the way. We're good. It's, it's freaking out. Thank you for your prayers. It's doing well. I don't know what that was all about. Thank you, Microsoft. Um, so we're going to start in, in verse 15, but I want to briefly review what we talked about last week. Because again, when you come to the Word of God, context matters. That means what's going on around it matters. It informs how we read the passage. And so I want to look at 
this uh, chapter, verses 1 through 14 of Matthew chapter 18. And this whole passage is about God caring for his little ones. And we talked about how Jesus uses this idea. Remember, the disciples come and say, hey, Jesus, who's the greatest, right? They want a pat on the back. And he says, unless, unless you're willing to become like a child, you need to be like a child, humble, servant-oriented, of lowly status. He's not even talking about sweet and pure and innocent. He's more talking about their status in society. And in their society, children were like at the bottom of the ladder. So he said, in your quest for greatness, try to not be great. So he takes their ideas and he turns them on their head. And then he uses this idea of being like little children throughout the rest of the passage. Jesus talks about his disciples like little ones, those he loves and he cares for. So he talks about himself almost like a parent. And the church now needs to be this environment of little ones caring for other little ones. And he even goes into the metaphor of a shepherd caring for the sheep. Just this concept of caring for, loving, and nurturing. In verse 5, he goes on to talk about we need to welcome those that are like little ones. This is how the church is to treat one another. In verses 6 through 9, he warns against causing a little one to stumble. We need to be careful not to lead someone else, a brother or sister in Christ, into sin. In verses 10 to 14, he talks about how much God cares for the little ones who wander and who are struggling. He goes after them, seeks them out. Now, as we look at the last two sections of this chapter, starting in verse 15. I want you to remember, this is the same conversation. It's the same moment. What Jesus has just said he, in Matthew, he has literally just said it. They just had this conversation, and he's moved into now this part that we're going to talk about with church discipline. Because the tone of this whole chapter is of a very loving shepherd who cares for a sheep, and a very loving parent who cares for their children. But then he deals with what happens when the little ones, fellow Christians, people in the church who claim to know Jesus Christ, what happens when we refuse to treat one another the way we should? What then? Do we just say, oh well, no big deal. They'll just work it out. A good parent knows there are those times you have to get involved. It's gone far enough. And if those involved refuse to do the right thing, then the parent needs to get involved. And Jesus is giving instructions here for how the church needs to discipline each other. Because sometimes Christians don't act like Christians. Sometimes we hurt other Christians. Sometimes our sin influences and affects others. And there's a danger to ourselves and to the church. And sometimes, even when confronted, we refuse to do the right thing. We refuse. That's what Matthew chapter 18, verses 15, all the way down to 35 is all about. Two ways that Christians refuse to do the right thing. So let's look at the first refusal in verses 15 to 20. It's a refusal to repent. 
What do we do if someone has sinned, but they refuse to repent? Now, we need to define some terms here. We're going to spend a lot of time at the very beginning on the first verse here to define what we're talking about, because the whole rest of the passage depends on this. First of all, what do we mean by repent? The word literally means to stop going one way, turn around, and go another way. It's not merely saying, I'm sorry. It's stopping the activity, realizing that it's wrong, apologizing, even asking for forgiveness, and then changing repentance, going a different way. To admit that what you're doing wrong, to be sorry for that, to ask forgiveness from the person you've wronged, and to seek to change. D.A. Carson puts it this way, repentance is not merely or not a merely intellectual change of mind or mere grief, but a radical transformation of the entire person, a fundamental turnaround involving mind and action and including overtones of grief, which results in fruit in keeping with repentance. So when we talk about repentance and refusing to repent, this is the definition I'm going to be working with. Now, we all sin. We are all sinners. We all struggle. We all make mistakes. We even at times, sometimes even purposefully, but good-naturedly maybe, we hurt others. We fail. We fall down. And in those times, there can be, should be, must be grace and forgiveness and restoration. But what if? What if the person that is sinning, the person who has hurt someone else, refuses to repent, refuses to admit that they've sinned against someone, refuses to accept biblical correction, refuses to change from the sinful way they are following, then the church has to take action. That's what Jesus talks about here. In order to protect the little ones of the church, and that's us, all those who are following Christ. He's not just talking about children here. He's talking about his followers like children. In order to protect the little ones, something must be done. And that's what verses 15 to 20 are about. So let's start in verse 15 and let's see what the issue is. What is it that's going on? Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Now, the issue is here is when someone sins against you. The Greek word is just brother. The NIV extrapolates that to brother and sister. I, I think in Rochester, I think we'd say use guys. Is that about, I think that's more in the South. It'd be y'all, okay? It's just a group, okay? You guys, all of you, brothers, sisters. But the point here, that, that family reference, a brother or a brother and sister, this is talking about fellow Christians. Somebody might say, oh, my boss was really mean to me. That's not what this passage is about. Oh, the president did this. That's not what this passage is about. This passage is about a Christian sinning against a Christian. So let's make sure we keep it in the context of exactly what Jesus is talking about. And what is the offense? It's either, Matthew's kind of unclear on this. It's either someone who is in sin or it is specifically someone who has sinned against you. Now, there are, and maybe you have a helpful little footnote there, helpful meaning somewhat confusing, meaning some of the ancient manuscripts say that it's sin against you. Some of them just say a brother or sister who sins. And so there's a little bit of confusion in Matthew. However, 
If we go to Luke chapter 17, verses 3 through 4, which is the parallel version of this and a much more condensed version, it's actually very helpful because Luke specifically records Jesus saying, so watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. So I do think as we're looking at Matthew chapter 18, I do think this is someone who sins against you personally. This is not, I don't like so-and-so and what they're doing. I'm going to go confront them. There's a place for that. There's a time for that, but that's not what this passage is about. This is someone who has specifically sinned against you. And what should you do? You should go to them and point out their fault. That's kind of a polite way of saying it. It's actually a rather strong word. It's a rebuke or a confrontation. Hey, you did this. According to God's word, this is sin. Now, a couple of things we need to understand here. First of all, this is a clear sin. This is not someone doing something in a way you don't like. It's not someone just making you mildly uncomfortable. It's not something you wish would just change a little bit. It's not somebody who likes country music and you think that that's horrible. I would be rebuking a lot of people if that's the way it was. That's not what it's talking about, okay? I'm just saying, I mean... Spend more time in prayer. You'll get away from that stuff. But that's not what it's about. This is about clear sin. Okay? He uses that word sin. It's not an opinion here. It's according to God's standard. It is sin. Second, I think it's important to understand in the context of the little ones and someone causing a little one to stumble and the wandering sheep, this is a relationship harming sin. This is a unity-damaging sin. I don't think we need to take this as a command to just point out every little thing that everybody does against us that is wrong. We would be doing this constantly. And the Bible has enough to say about this. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12 says, Hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers all wrongs. There is a place to let go of things that someone has done against you. There is a time to do that. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 13. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. There's a place for humility. To say, you know what? I don't think they should have done that. It it might even be sin. But it's not going to harm my relationship with them. We can keep following Christ together and God will deal with their hearts. There's a time and a place to let go of those things and move on. But what Jesus is talking about here in the context is a sin that damages the relationship between two Christians to the point that it threatens the unity of the relationships in the church. It's a serious, serious matter. And so he lays out a process of dealing with this sin in the church, a process we often today call church discipline, bringing someone back to repentance. And so it starts here between two people. And the goal really should be for it to end right here. A brother or sister goes to another brother or sister and they talk. And hopefully the person says, I am so sorry. I I didn't mean that. 
and they can talk about them. Maybe it's just a misunderstanding. Or I am so sorry. You're right. I did that. And that was wrong. Will you please forgive me? Yes, I forgive you. Boom. Church discipline at its best. And nobody else needs to know. It's between two people. And it's private. And the person who has sinned repents and asks forgiveness. And the person that was sinned against gives forgiveness. But if the person who was sinned or who has sinned refuses to repent, then Jesus says there's a next step. The person who was sinned against takes a few other person, people to confront the person. And they say, look, this is what you did and it was wrong. And if the person says, I refuse to repent or I don't think it's wrong, I don't care what the Lord's word says. I don't think that it's wrong. Then the next step is to bring it before the whole church. And the whole church publicly confronts that person. This is what Jesus talks about. They say, look, what you did was wrong. This is sin. And if then the person says, I refuse to listen to you, I refuse to repent. Jesus tells us to take drastic steps with serious consequences. Now, the goal, please keep this in mind. Because we hear these things and we go, oh, that's just harsh. That's so mean. That's so awful. But the goal of all of this is repentance that leads to a restoration of relationship and fellowship. That's the goal. The goal is not kicking somebody out of the church. The goal is restoration. If we look at the end of Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, he says, if they listen to you, you have won them over. And throughout this passage, he uses that phrase over and over again. If, if, it's conditional, if they listen to you. Now, what does Jesus mean by listen? And what does he mean by won them over? Is it two people that sit there and one says, yes, I... I've heard you out and I affirm what you are saying. And then they go their separate ways. That's not what he's talking about. He's clearly in this idea of listening and winning someone over. He is talking about repentance. Again, Luke chapter 17, verses 3 through 4 is so helpful here. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, there it is. If they repent, forgive them. The goal is not just having them hear what you have to say. The goal is to bring a sinner to repentance so that a relationship among Christians can be restored. So, back to Matthew 18, 15. And yes, we will get out of the first verse. I promise you. We'll be here till 3 o'clock. But we will get through it. Then you'll discipline me. Now, Here's the components, okay? They're all right there in the first verse, and that's why I wanted to spend time on it, because the rest of this chapter depends, or at least the rest of this section, depends on what we understand about this first verse. What we have is a relationship-damaging, unity-destroying sin between two Christians. We have the necessity of a confrontation and a rebuke, pointing out someone's sin, hopefully done in love, but there needs to be a, hey, this is wrong. You have the opportunity for repentance and forgiveness. That's the goal. There's the necessity then of continuing the discipline process if the person does not repent. So now let's go through the steps of the discipline. The step one is one person to one person. It is a private step just between the two of you. There is no outside gossip or slander. There's no forming of groups and rallying people to a cause. It is one-on-one. And it should stay there. 
because the goal is the restoration of the relationship between the two people. There's two potential outcomes here. Either the person that has sinned repents and seeks forgiveness, or we have to go to the next step. That's what Jesus is saying. If it's that serious to confront them on it, we need to go to the next step. One-on-one discipline is, hopefully, as far as much discipline, or most discipline, should ever get to. The problem is a lot of things blow up in the church because we don't deal with it at this level. Or other people say, well, I should have known and you should have included us. And Jesus says, no, one on one. That's where it should start. If we would lovingly go to those who have sinned against us and try to work out the situation with them, a whole lot of issues would be resolved before they blow up into something else. But what if the person refuses to repent? They say, no, I don't admit that this is sin. I don't admit that I was wrong. Well, now we need to go to a small group of people. Verse 16 says, But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I think it's easy enough to presume that these are godly, Christian, mature people. You don't just invite your best buddies. You invite people that would be able to give counsel and wisdom in this situation. This might be, I think, in the church, a place that the elders can get involved. Or just godly Christian friends could get involved to go with you. Now, there's a couple reasons for this. Jesus says they're going to serve as witnesses. Some people say that these people had to have seen the sin take place. I don't think that's correct at all. Because that's almost like saying if somebody sins against you and nobody sees it, then nobody can do anything about it. And that's not what he's talking about. What he means is witnesses to come and sit down and say, I've listened to you, and I've listened to you, and I've listened to the call for repentance, and I've listened to you refuse to repent. These are also people that hopefully, if you're the one that's wrong, if you say so-and-so sinned against you, and they sit and they listen to you, and they go, I don't think they did. I think maybe you're blowing this out of proportion. These are the people that say, let's cool our jets right here. Let's not go further. They can give counsel on the matter. And they can help you to show humility. The goal is to keep it small, to seek repentance, to give forgiveness, and to heal the relationship. But these people can also serve as witnesses in the sense that if this person will not uh, repent, if they refuse and it now needs to be taken to the whole church, these people can stand up and say, I was there in that conversation. This is what happened. And that's the next step. If the person still refuses to repent, he says, chapter 18, verse 17, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. This is hard, friends. But we are a church that's based on the word of God, and this is the son of God speaking. And so we need to take this and say this means something. Let us change our ideas to conform to what the word of God is saying. He says, tell it to the church. This would be a public announcement. In a church like ours, this would probably take place from here. So-and-so is in sin. They have been confronted in their sin. We are in agreement that what they have done is in sin. And they are refusing to repent. Now, I know some of you are going, you've got to be kidding. You would be sued. Maybe. Churches are. 
But you know, we're supposed to obey God, not man. And if this is the Son of God saying that we need to do this in situations like this, then it's that serious. Now, the end of it, he says, is if they still refuse to listen to the church. Remember, the goal is repentance and restoration. Hopefully, they would stop and say, wow, the church has spoken. Maybe I just need to accept that I'm wrong. I'm sorry. I will change. Will you please forgive me? That's the goal. But if they refuse, then Jesus says to treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, how does Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? He loves them, doesn't he? He shows grace and mercy to them. He he welcomes them. And some people say, see, that's what Jesus is talking about. It's really not. He's using that idea of how the disciples would typically treat a pagan or a tax collector. See, the goal here is the restoration of the sinner, and that is definitely loving. But the problem is this person refuses to repent. They are hurting themselves and those around them. If that person refuses to repent, they are refusing to restore the relationship, which is damaging the church of Jesus Christ. And this final step of treating them as you would a pagan or a tax collector means you can no longer treat them as if they are a fellow believer. For all you know, if somebody gets to this point, the whole church has confronted somebody and they refuse to repent, All we know is they might not even be saved. And we can no longer vouch for their salvation. Other passages show just how serious this is. Romans chapter 16, verse 17. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. 2 Thessalonians Chapter 3, verse 14, take special note of anyone who does not obey our instructions in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. This is not a contemporary message, friends, of just loving and accepting everybody and your way's fine and just come and it doesn't matter. This is Jesus saying there are things that matter and that must be addressed. But the goal here, The ultimate goal is the restoration of the person to heal the relationship. But all of this is contingent on repentance. There has to be repentance. Some things to remember from this. It needs to start small. It should be between two fellow believers. Unless the sin is more public or more dangerous than that. But it should, as much as possible, be kept small and private. The goal is to seek repentance and reconciliation. Not to abuse the sinner or the person that is calling them to repentance. It's not to cause strife and division. That's not the goal of this. It's not to prove that we are right and they are wrong. The first step when someone sins against you is not to immediately begin treating them different to be angry with them, or to hurt them. That's not the first step. And the final step here does not mean shunning the person, refusing to talk to them, and not even allowing them into the church. We hope that unsaved people will come into the church and worship with us and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it does mean that we have to treat them different. It does mean, frankly, that if they're a member of the church, they would be removed from membership. 
Because how can you allow somebody to have authority over the church if we don't even know they're a Christian? It does mean the elders would have to go to this person and say, we forbid you from taking communion because that is for the gathered body of Christ. And you are showing evidence that you are not saved at all. And to really make the rubber hit the road here, imagine a situation where somebody has come under church discipline, it's been publicly announced, and we said, look, we want this person to repent. But until they do, we need to treat them as an unbeliever. And they call you up and they say, hey, can you go golfing next Thursday? Here's the response. I really wish I could. I would love to get together with you and golf. But before we do that, we need to get together and talk about your sin. And you need to repent. And until you do that, I can't get together and play golf with you. Let's go out for dinner. That would be great. But here's what we're going to talk about. Because you need to repent. And until you do that, I can't just hang out with you like nothing is the matter. That's what Jesus is talking about. We need to make sure we don't jump steps here. If somebody comes to you and they sin against you, you don't get to jump to the shunning and treating them like an unbeliever. You've got to go through the steps. Otherwise, you make yourself judge and jury. And Jesus says that's the role of the church, not the individual believer. Because humility would say, we might be wrong. We need to be very, very careful. One final warning. We need to be careful. There are those that when someone sins against them, they are put in danger. In a situation of abuse, where someone is being harmed, you don't go to them and say, okay, you know what? You really need to go personally and privately to that person and nobody else should be involved. No, no. If that person's in danger, it's okay to skip a step. And some people can go and do the confrontation. Jesus is not saying you have to follow all of these to the letter of the law. We don't force someone who is abused to sit down one-on-one with their abuser. That would be cruel. Jesus goes on and he talks about authority in the church, verses 18 through 20. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather together in my name, there I am I with them. We've looked at this wording before. Jesus has used it in Matthew chapter, I think it was 16, um, where Jesus, or rather where Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus talks about the church for the first time, and he says these very words, this idea of binding and loosing. I hope I'm saying that right. Losing, loosing, loosening. Anyway, what he's talking about is authority to declare something okay or not okay. Now, he's not saying the church gets to change the word of God. But outside the word of God, the church gets to make decisions. And God says, I give you that authority. And this is the church making a decision. Based on everything we know, this person has not repented. And we are saying that we must treat them as one who is not a believer. That's what's going on here. The point is here that the church is a representation of God's heavenly rule. And we are to live out God's will here. And he says, what if two or three, or when two or three agree, or where two or three gather, there am I with them. Some people say, see, if you don't have two or three, then Christ's presence isn't with you. That's, that's not really what this passage is saying. I mean, he says in Matthew 28, 20, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus is with his followers. He's talking about here authority. Where two or three gather, they then have authority as a church to make these sorts of decisions. 
and to possibly, if necessary, rebuke someone. Now remember why all this is necessary. This is necessary because the church belongs to Jesus Christ. He gave his life for us. We've been looking at on Wednesday nights in in Ephesians that, that then our relationships in the church need to be a display of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we allow sin to infiltrate those relationships and we do nothing about it, it hurts us, it hurts the sinners, it hurts the church, and it hurts the gospel of Jesus Christ and its work in this world. person who refuses to repent of clear sin that has been lovingly and carefully confronted shows evidence that he or she may not be saved. And we need to make sure that they're aware of that danger and to call them back to know Jesus Christ. We can't treat them as if nothing has gone wrong. But if at any point in this process the person repents, we are to forgive them. Jesus says that over and over. Every step is conditional on their repentance. So if they repent, we are to forgive them. And that's what the next section is about. And again, I swear, I'll go through this very quickly. We'll look at it in depth next week. But the first section is about refusing to repent. This section is about refusing to forgive. Let me just read it for us. Verses 21 to 22, he says, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Remember, same conversation. Peter has listened to what Jesus just said. And throughout it, Jesus has talked about if the person refuses to repent, here's what you should do. But Peter's putting two and two and together and he's saying but if they do repent then i have to forgive them well come on jesus wait a minute there has to be a limit and he thought he was being very gracious and saying seven times jewish rabbi said three and after on the fourth time you're done that's it it's like a three strikes and you're out see baseball in the scriptures peter thought he's being really generous and jesus says take your idea of generosity multiply it times itself and the goal is not a new checklist of did they get to 77 times or 490 times. The point is an infinite number. So big that you should quit counting. That's his point. As many times as a brother sins against you and comes to you and repents, you are to forgive them. That's a powerful, powerful and difficult statement. And Jesus explains this in a parable. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. This is someone who owes in today's money like a billion dollars. It is an unimaginable sum of money. And I know you might say, well, I'm a Warren Buffett and and Elon Musk. These guys could, he's a servant, okay? He will never pay this back. That's the point of what Jesus is saying. It's an absurd amount of money for a servant to owe anyone. And it is reasonable for the king to take everything the man has. That's how things worked in this time. You owe this much, you can't pay it back. I'm taking everything you have and you're going to go to jail until you can pay it back. But the servant begs for more time. 
And so look at what the king does. He doesn't just give him more time. He canceled the debt. He took that billion dollars and said, you owe me nothing. I can't wait to talk more about this next week because that's the gospel of Jesus Christ right there. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. We owed more than we could possibly pay, and he canceled the debt by nailing it to the cross and dying in our place. But then there's a second scene. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Oh, be patient with me. Verse 28, rather. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. That's exactly what he had asked the king. Be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. This fellow servant owes him what's probably about a couple thousand dollars. It, it's a reasonable sum of money. It's not a little tiny bit. It's a bit much, but it's, he could pay it back. He could at some point, by working hard enough, pay this back. And yet this one who has been forgiven of so much refuses, refuses to forgive his brother, his fellow servant. And you know what's interesting is that this shows that this unforgiving servant has not been changed by the king's mercy. He experienced it. He seemed to have accepted it. But there's been no heart change in him whatsoever. He refuses to forgive. And remember Peter's questions: how many times? This is Jesus' answer. As many times as necessary. The third scene in the parable is a very angry king. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. I can't but help but think that there's a little bit of a correlation between this and the small group of people going to confront someone. A group now goes to the king and tells him what happened. Verse 32, then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Verse 34 there, some of your translations might just say turned him over to the jailers. The Greek word is literally torturers. It's not just a jailer. There was the jailer that put people in prison to kind of pay off a debt. Then there was a torturer that inflicted physical harm on somebody under the order of the king to pay for what he did that was wrong. It was a horrific thing. But understand, this man owes more than he can possibly pay back in all of eternity. He is going to be put under the torturer until he can pay back what he owes. What's the picture here? This is hell. This is a picture of hell. This man, because he refused to forgive, shows that he's not even a believer at all. He doesn't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And finally, verse 35, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother and sister from your heart. To refuse to forgive someone who repents is evidence that we are holding on to sin. And if we persist in this, then we are the person who is unwilling to repent. To forgive, or rather to refuse to forgive, 
is evidence that we don't understand the gospel at all. The reason I think it's so important to take these two passages together is that as Christians, so often we say, look, you just need to forgive so-and-so. But they sinned against me and they refuse to apologize. Yeah, but you just need to let it go and just forgive them. And that's not what Jesus is saying, actually. There is an aspect of forgiveness here that is conditional on that person's repentance. They have done something to destroy the relationship between two brothers or sisters in Christ. And that must be fixed. You see, the second passage where it talks about how many times must we forgive... If that person is not repenting, we need to go back to the first passage. But if that person has repented and we don't want to forgive, then we need to go to the second. They go together. Sometimes we talk about repentance as just letting go of that anger and showing love. And that's good. But ultimately in Scripture, forgiveness is about restoring a right relationship between a brother and or two brothers, or two sisters in a church. We cannot allow clear, unrepentant sin to be left unchallenged in the church of Jesus Christ. Because we are the gathering of the little ones of Jesus. And he cares deeply about us. And he doesn't want that sin to continue to spread and influence and affect others. We must do the hard work to rightly restore gospel-centered relationships, relationships that demonstrate repentance and forgiveness. We cannot refuse to do these important things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, this is a lot to take in in one sermon. And I pray that you would help us as a church to take this serious, though. As difficult as this is, sometimes we use that as an excuse to just ignore it. And yet, Father, so often we want to jump to just judging someone rather than going through these important steps. And that's just as damaging and just as harmful. And so I pray, Father, we would be a church of mercy and grace that lovingly goes to one another to clearly challenge when necessary, that we would be people that would accept that challenge, receive that rebuke, and repent. God, that we would understand that the most important thing is a person's relationship with you through Jesus Christ, and we cannot allow that person to continue to think they are a Christian if they are clearly showing no repentance in their life at all. But God, may we also have a heart of forgiveness. When someone who has hurt us, even multiple times, truly repents, may we be able to forgive them because we have been forgiven of so much more in Jesus Christ. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.